This episode is sponsored by Aquaphor, the number one dermatologist-recommended brand for minor wound care and dry, cracked skin. With 30 years of patient experience and 24 safety and efficacy studies, Aquaphor Healing Ointment has been synonymous with improving skin health. This episode of Derms and Conditions includes information discussed at the time of recording. New information may have emerged since that time. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Del Rosso, a dermatologist in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, involved in a lot of research at our JDR Dermatology Research and also with advanced dermatology and cosmetic surgery. So I like to talk about research, but also a lot about treating patients, which, which I do quite a bit. And we run into a lot of questions in clinical practice, even those of us that that are involved in certain areas. Uh, there's there's never a lack of need for new information, and that's why today we're talking to Dr. April Armstrong. She's professor of dermatology and associate dean at University of Southern California, uh, and she's also one of the more recent uh, program chairs of the fall and winter clinical dermatology meetings, and we're happy to have her on board for uh, with that. So April, it's great to have you on today. Great. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I know you're going to help me with some areas that, that I know I struggle with. So the first question has to do with, you have a patient that ha- that you've been managing with difficult atopic dermatitis, and you may have that patient on a systemic treatment. Let's say cyclosporin, which I think would be a good example, with a variety of different topicals. And now you're getting to the point where you're thinking about and they're, they've made the decision, they agree with you, Let, let's talk about going on on dupilumab injections. How do you bridge patients from cyclosporin to dupilumab? And if there are any other systemic treatments you want to address in doing that, you know, feel free to do that. Great question, Jim. Um, so I would say for a patient that you have on cyclosporin, that patient is probably, I would say, pretty hot in terms of their atopic dermatitis. And you've decided that you're going to take that patient to dupilumab. One of the things that I would t- typically do is uh, by the time when you prescribe dupilumab to when the patient gets dupilumab, that can range anywhere between a week to possibly a few weeks. And I typically would actually continue them on cyclosporin and usually at the BID dosing. So typically when I dose a patient on cyclosporin for atopic dermatitis or psoriasis, the reason that they're dosed is because they can be quite severe. So I would do five milligrams per kilogram and then do that divided dosing. And I will continue that typically until they get uh, dupilumab if it's not, for example, too protracted. And then once they are on dupilumab, there's oftentimes an overlap. Um, and I oftentimes observe how they do on that overlap. If they start to do, if, if they start to com- uh, improve significantly, let's say about 50% improvement, then I start to taper cyclosporin first to from BID dosing to QD dosing. And you can do that for about two weeks or so. And then you taper down to every other day dosing for another uh, two weeks or so. But you're but you're still you're still at your five milligram per kilogram. But you're giving that in a single dose, so you're giving half of the original dose. So I'm still doing the five milligram uh, per kilogram, but giving it at the different uh, frequencies of dosing. Okay. All right. 
Yeah. And then I uh, would continue that. And typically, I would say about a month or two into their uh, dupilumab dose, and obviously each person is different, uh, then this uh, tapering of cyclosporine would com- be complete. And then they would be con- uh, transitioned onto uh, dupilumab solely, perhaps in combination with a, with a topical agent. So at some point, you're going to be judging, are they getting the effect of dupilumab such that you're going to maintain them on dupilumab as opposed to the cyclosporine they were on, which obviously, if it was, it could have been doing great, but you're at the point where you're concerned about how long they're going to be on cyclosporine. When do you decide if the dupilumab is going to be enough? Because they're on, they're on the combination for a while, correct? That's correct. And uh, oftentimes I would decide if dupilumab is sufficient around uh, two months time period, because if they're on combination therapy, I would expect significant improvement from both therapies. Makes sense. So the next question I have is with regard to if you have a patient on one of the injectable biologics for psoriasis, and feel free to distinguish between the different classes of those drugs, whether it's anti-TNF, anti-IL-17, anti-IL-23, whatever. And you have the patients on one, and for whatever reason, they're having an adverse effect or they're not getting the benefit you expect them to be getting, you're going to switch them to another injectable biologic. How do you go about that? Do you give uh, break periods between them, depending which ones they were on, or do you just stop one and start the other? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a question I oftentimes do get from my colleagues uh, quite a bit. So we now have a lot of options. So switching is actually more common than, than before. And oftentimes the way I think about this is that a person needs to switch on from one biologic to another because the first biologic is not working optimally for the person. And from my experience, and, and I have, uh, uh, psoriasis clinic, both at, for example, the LA County clinic setting, as well as in the Keck School Medicine private setting. Uh, what I've observed over the years is that biologics actually have a lot of flexibility and a lot of give. So oftentimes, one can actually switch immediately to another biologic without having to have a period in which there could potentially be a gap. And the reason for that is that the most of our biologics are dosed optimally to, to a level of controlling psoriasis, but not to the level of significant immunosuppression. So as a result of that, when you're thinking about uh, coming off of one biologic and starting on another, and it could be as soon as the very next day, let's say you just, the patient just had a, um, you know, a dose of ustekinumab. I'm, I'm just using that for example. And then you decide to switch that person to, for example, ixekizumab. And then oftentimes it's difficult to know when the patient will actually receive that next dose, uh, the first shot of ixekizumab. The biologics have so much give that I often tell my patient, even if the next uh, dose, uh, if, if, even if the ixekizumab comes the next day, the day after you inject yourself with ustekinumab, that we have enough room flexibility that you can actually go ahead dose that uh, get that loading dose in that's another question i get a lot do you when you switch do you do you need to load the patient uh, i would say yes absolutely still load the patient um, so so that's the approach that i've taken and the key thing is side effects i haven't seen significant side effects uh, or you know that's greater than what's 
expected of how we uh, use biologics. Uh, with that particular regimen. So that's interesting. You're not waiting until you would have given the next dose of ustekinumab to start the 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 other biologic. Uh, um, so it, you're just starting them right away, and and that would be true of any of the biologics we have, whether they're anti-TNFs or IL-1223s or 23s. You would be the same general guide. That's correct. Um, and uh, and I found that that oftentimes work quite well in terms of controlling psoriasis and, uh, um, and that uh, I haven't seen uh, much side effect with that particular approach. Well, I did learn something there. I have to say, I appreciate your com compliment earlier, but, but I, I always wondered about uh, when to start and stop. So I, I have another question. I have a fair number of people that have been treated with oral apremolast, and some of them do extremely well. Some of them, you, you have the problems of GI side effects, occasionally headache uh, that gets in the way of continuing it, but many people, you know, work past that. And some of them do good, but they still have, you know, some resistant psoriasis. So I think we all recognize, you know, the range of what oral apremolast does. There's been more and more discussion about utilizing it in combination with other therapies. And I've seen data with phototherapy. I've seen some mention uh, with with uh, usually an anti-TNF like adalimumab. I've seen some in the literature. And I know the Corona Registry, or at least talking to Bruce Strober, there's been a lot of different combinations that have been used, but not enough to really publish with anything specific. Uh, what's been your experience and what are your feelings about when you have a patient on oral apremolast, they're doing okay, but you really need to step up to the next level to try to get better control of their psoriasis. Uh, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, so Jim, I think, first of all, the combination therapies with apremolast that you spoke about, I think they can that can work well for a lot of patients. And certainly, uh, we have uh, some data to support its use with various biologics. I would say on average, uh, in terms of the additional benefit that one can get from apremolast, uh, if we're talking about at least 75% improvement or posi-75 as a benchmark, I would say with addition of a, uh, of a premolas, you can probably get 20% uh, sort of more people that achieving that uh, benchmark, just as kind of a, my personal estimate. So there is a benefit. Um, there is some limitation to that benefit. So if a patient is on monotherapy with a premolast and that hasn't worked well for the patient, uh, my, my approach would be to consider a different primary monotherapy for that patient, um, typically a biologic agent. And then, uh, and then, so I oftentimes think about a premolast, um, if it has worked well as monotherapy, keep patients on a premolast. If it hasn't, switch to, let's say, a biologic, but also premolast can be useful as an adjunctive therapy added onto a biologic if you don't want to switch that primary biologic. Uh, the problem oftentimes will be the payers. They will recognize that the patient is on both medications and they may give you some grief for that. But but this is a patient that's doing, you know, between those two, right? It's hard, you know, they, they, it's not that you're thinking, oh, they didn't respond favorably to a premolast. You were hoping for more, but they're doing okay. They're getting some improvement, but it's you're really hoping for more. You would still think about going to another primary monotherapy or 
this this is adding this is not having a biologic and adding the apremolase. This is the patients already on the oral apremolase. Uh, so does that does that question make sense? Because that's a lot of the patients, I think, in that situation. Yeah. So I, uh, in those patients uh, who are not optimally managed or not too happy with a premolas, even though they do see, see some improvement, I would try to also optimize their topical therapy. So if they're a premolas and topical therapy, both in combination is not giving them what they're looking for, then I would switch to uh, You'd make biologic. the switch, and you'd circumvent having to deal with covering uh, two systemic medications and the payers, etc. Aquaphor is a proud supporter of the dermatology community and helping dermatologists achieve their therapeutic goals. So I have another question for you because, you know, I still find that the recommendations are sometimes confusing. Um, can you give any general and that are also specific enough recommendations on vaccinations and let's talk about adult patients because obviously it can get a little bit more confusing in the pediatric group with different vaccination schedules and things adult patients that you're putting on a, a, a biologic an injectable biologic and or this could be some of the other systemic immunosuppressives and as we move along even Janus kinase inhibitors the recommendations with regard to but let's focus on the biologics that we have now the injectable biologics about recommendations on vaccination let's assume the patient hasn't started the biologic and then we can talk about if they're already on one and you want to give them a vaccine Absolutely. Uh, so very, very important topic, especially the time that we're living right now. So, so I'll, maybe I'll, I'll have us really think about that in terms of biologic. First of all, treating, uh, if a patient needs to get a killed vac vaccine versus a live attenuated vaccine. So for patients who haven't started any biologics, um, in either situations, on any vaccines, the recommendation is always try to get the vaccine first before you start the biologic if you can. And that's a, that's a general recommendation. Now, the harder part is what happens if they are already on the biologic, which is actually these days the majority of the case, and they need to get a vaccine. Now, for those who are, who want to receive a killed vaccine, uh, in those cases, uh, the biologics, you can continue the biologic without disruption to receive those kill vaccines. So, so that is uh, nice and sort of straightforward. The part that's not so straightforward is live vaccines with regards to biologics. All of the biologics that we currently have have a warning in the package insert that says that live vaccines should be avoided. Well, in real life, guess what? Sometimes live, you have to have the live vaccines or the benefit risks really outweigh having the live vaccines. And oftentimes in those cases, it would really depend on um, the, the situation. So the general recommendation, and we've looked at this these data closely uh, as part of the National Psoriasis Foundation medical board effort, is that you would want to wait. You, so you want to hold a biologic in the person about to receive a live vaccine for about two half-lives prior to administering the live vaccine. And then after the administration of the live vaccine, then you wait about two to four weeks before you restart that biologic. 
And the reason for this particular logic is twofold. One, with the live vaccines, it's not only about whether you can get the body to mount enough good vaccine response, but also it's about the safety uh, as well. So this recommendation is being drafted and it accounts for the different uh, length and levels of viremia that that, uh, um, that attenuated but live vaccine can have in the body. So as a general rule, again, if you have to get a live vaccine in those with biologics, consider holding the biologic for about two half-lives prior to getting the live vaccine. And after getting the live vaccine, then uh, wait two to four weeks before uh, restarting uh, the biologic. And, and that would apply. We're using biologics as a general term, but obviously there's differences between them. Are we talking about the biologic, injectable biologics that we typically use for psoriasis, like anti-TNFs, anti-IL-17s, 23s, whatever, and also dupilumab? Or are we only talking about the biologics that we use for psoriasis? Yeah, so right now, uh, my discussion is mostly centered around biologic for psoriasis because we have a bit more uh, data around that. Uh, the whether to give live vaccines with dupilumab is a little bit uncertain. Uh, but I think the approach that uh, I just talked about is overall a conservative approach. Um, and it's something I think we're all looking are going to examine a little bit further with regards to dupilumab. That, that, that helps a lot. Um, what about vaccines that need to be repeated with a second vaccine vaccination shot, like like Zoster or even uh, COVID vaccines? Right. So for COVID vaccines, there has been a lot of different conversations, uh, but very little data. So <laughs> and and the reason it's confusing is because different um, uh, different entities also uh, have uh, uh, different uh, have uh, recommendations that sort of conflict with one another. But overall, um, what I wanted to say is that the uh, uh, International Eczema Council have a, a pretty, uh, I thought, useful, simple, but broad statement about COVID vaccines and uh, the use of immunomodulatory or immunosuppressive agents. So what they say is that anytime you get a vaccine, COVID vaccine, and all of our COVID vaccines are currently killed vaccines. So each time you get any dose of that, you want to wait one week after each vaccination uh, before you administer, whether it's oral or uh, injectable uh, immunosupp- immunomodulatory agents. And the reason for that is to in- try to enhance the vaccine response. So I think that's a general rule that's quite reasonable. And uh, um, in a world where we have lack of a lot of data, uh, would help ensure our patients to get good vaccine response without significantly impacting their disease activity. And if we look a little bit further, I would say the National Psoriasis Foundation make a bit more nuanced recommendations for the COVID vaccines. And the reason for that is that we have a bit more data and and more data from rheumatology world to inform our recommendations as well. So the NPF recommends that for the killed vaccines, including COVID vaccines, that nothing different needs to be done with any of the biologics uh, with regards to the timing of the biologic and when you administer the uh, the vaccine. Uh, where it's different oftentimes is in with methotrexate and JAK inhibitors. And the recommendation there is to, after uh, each shot of the vaccine, of, of the vaccine, uh, COVID vaccine, you want to wait two weeks before you give methotrexate. Um, and for JAK inhibitors, you want to wait one week before you restart JAK inhibitors. And the rationale for that is for the body 
to have a good immune response to the vaccine. If the patients are on are on either of those, let's say they're on methotrexate and you stopped it, uh, how long would they have to be off of it before you would give the vaccine? You don't have to uh, get. You don't have to. Uh, stop the methotrexate or JAK inhibitors before you give the vaccine. So they can okay. continue right. that up to the time they get the vaccine. And then for methotrexate, wait two weeks after the vaccine to restart, after each dose of vaccine to restart. And for JAK inhibitors, wait one week post-vaccine before you restart that. This gives us uh, some reasonable guidance and probably will change a little bit down the line and we'll hopefully come to you for updates on this at another point in time when we have to have more scientific information. Well, April, this has been uh, very helpful to me. I'm writing down, I you like to have something reasonably concrete that you can work with and you're giving some time frames and some reasonable recommendations that I know will be Will, or, or will be very helpful to me. So I appreciate your time and I'm guaranteeing you that we are going to come back to you for another, another one of these discussions. Thanks a lot and you have a great day. Thank you, Jim. It was a pleasure talking with you. We want to thank everyone for listening to Derms and Conditions this year in 2021 and we're looking forward to 2022. But right now, we wish all of you a happy holiday season. Take care and stay healthy and happy. On behalf of Aquaphor, we thank you for joining this week's episode. Recommend Aquaphor healing ointment for post-procedure wounds and the treatment of dry, cracked, irritated skin.